0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. How did America get hooked on skiing? In 1939,
1: Hans Schneider moved from Austria to North Conway, New Hampshire to teach skiing. But before the sport really took off, World War II broke out. But after the war, a gritty band of soldiers who fought in the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division returned home into the mountains they loved. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Park's Traveler. Last week, Christian Beckwith, an alpinist and climbing historian, introduced us to the 10th Mountain Division and how it was jump-started by climbers who had honed their skills in the craggy mountains of Grand Teton National Park. Christian, who rolls out this history in his podcast, 90-pound rucksack, is back with us today to explain how those soldiers kick-started the ski industry in America, started organizations such as the National Outdoor Leadership School, and played a role in the fields of avalanche science and wilderness rescue. We'll be back with Christian after a short break to learn about how these soldiers got the ski industry moving.
0: The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Parks' cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, Board development, executive search, or diversity planning—Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PetreroGroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Okay,
1: we're back with Christian Beckwith, uh, a veteran alpinist and climbing historian. Last week we were talking with him about the formation of the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division and the role that climbers who uh, honed their craft in the Tetons in today's Grand Teton National Park played the role in the formation of the 10th Mountain Division. Christian, um, at, at the end of last week's discussion, you were mentioning you know the, the end of the war, the troops uh, from the 10th Mountain Division had gone to... Uh, the Julian Alps in, in present-day Slovenia, I believe, but then it was Yugoslavia because they wanted to climb. And then at the end of the war, they came back to the United States. What, what did they do then?
2: Well, first they went into the Julian Alps. Yes, they were able to go climbing, but they were also concerned about Tito because he was making movements and the army wanted to make sure that they didn't become yet another act of aggression on the European continent. But when they came back, they ended up going back out into the mountains that they'd fallen in love with. And that's such an interesting idea for me, um, in part because the, the last organization that I ran was looking at nature as a social determinant of health. And one of the things that we were researching was the mental health benefits of time outside. And so we were talking to researchers who were looking at the difference between your mind when it was engaged in green space versus your mind was when it was engaged in blue space. So, land versus water. And the evidence is is clear. Time outside makes you feel better. And we all know that. And all of us who love to be outside know that. All of us who love our national parks. That's why we go. And so what was so interesting to me is that when these soldiers came back, they came back with what was called shell shock at the time. Today we call it PTSD. In 114 days of combat in Italy. The 10th Mountain Division And their 13,124 soldiers who had deployed suffered 4,154 wounded and 969 killed. And when you read the accounts of what they experienced in that role over the Gothic line and all the way down into the Po Valley and all the way up to Lake Garda, you realize that they had seen horrors that no human should ever have to experience in his or her life. And so when they came back, I think the, the popular story is that they just wanted to all go skiing and they started, they were involved with either founding or developing more than 60 ski areas around America. Folks like Paul Petzl, who'd been the Teton climbing pioneer, uh, who had achieved the high altitude mark on K2 in 1938, and who had been in charge of the mountain. Rescue operations in Camp Hale for the 10th Mountain Division started companies like Knowles, National Outdoor Leadership School, which has been responsible for taking hundreds of thousands of people from around the world outside and teaching them to be self sufficient. What was interesting to me was that the reasons for going back on the surface might seem to be just to get back to what they'd fallen in love with while they were training at Camp Hale. But I think what we know now is there was a, an actual psychological necessity for them to heal. And the mountains and nature provided a sort of bomb and catharsis that was not available to them any in any other way, in, in any other way, shape or form. And so you had people like David Brower, who was an instrumental part of the 10th Mountain Division and who had come out of the Sierra Nevada range, out of the Sierra Club, in california and risen to become an instructor and then one of the leaders of one of the units in italy he became one of the foremost conservation leaders in america in the 20th century and you had people like john Montaigne, dick emerson doug mclaren and ernie field who came to the tetons after the war and became part of grand teton national park as rangers and proceeded to set up a mountain rescue training that then evolved into something that we we take for granted as climbers and skiers today, called the Jenny Lake Rangers. And that was all based on their experiences, training with Paul Petzold's mountain rescue evacuation procedures in Camp Hale. And then in the Julian Alps, where John Montaigne was in charge of the 85th Assault School of Climbing, where he was teaching the 10th Mountain Division soldiers to refine their skills on Austria's highest peak, Groglockner. So all of these these skill sets and these inherent and natural inclinations to come back into the mountains, they were. I think there was a lot of nuance to that desire, but at the end, I think the most compelling part about it for me was the fact that it was a way to heal. And I think that all of us who love to be outside understand we just feel better when we're there and we've seen soldiers come back who don't have an outlet like the mountains and they've experienced similar atrocities and horrors and they can go down into some very deep places and alcohol and drugs are just two of the things that are not healthy ways to cope with what they'd seen the mountains are And they are inherently dangerous, but they're beautiful. And we approach them with honor and respect. And in honoring and respecting them, I think we learn a degree of healing that these folks appreciated. And um, really, they leaned into when they got back from from Italy.
1: How far across the country did they spread? I mean, did they... um... Today, we look at, you know, ski areas and and ski landscapes, and we think about the Rocky Mountains and uh, the Sierra Nevada. Um, Did they, you know, congregate around specific ranges in the country?
2: They were pretty well spread out. I mean, there are the great thing about the division is every mountain town that you go into has a connection because somebody from the 10th came there and became part of that community, either in a ski area or some other form of outdoor recreation. So you've got ski areas in Maine that that claim the 10th Mountain Division as their own. And then you've got places in the northern reaches reaches of Alaska that similarly owe their identity to 10th Mountain Division soldiers like Peter Gabriel, who was a Swiss mountaineer who emigrated to the U.S. and mid 1920s and became an instrumental part of the instruction of the division. And then went up to Alaska and helped open up a a cold weather training center for the army up there. So their impact was diverse. It was spread across the country. It wasn't just limited to their actual physical presence because all that gear and clothing that had been developed so meticulously, by these climbers like David Brower and H. adams carter and Bob Bates and other climbers like Bester Robinson and Glenn Dawson and Dick Leonard, on behalf of the 10th Mountain Division, that became army surplus. And after the war, America had an economic boom. And what did people do? They went outside. And suddenly the gear and clothing that had been prohibitively expensive before the war at the tail end of the depression was now ubiquitous and cheap and so outdoor recreation as a result exploded and I think for the 10th mountain division soldiers. It was this act of catharsis that allowed them to reintegrate into society and allowed them to share what was beautiful from their time of training and to perhaps cope with what was dark in a way that was ultimately healthy, both for them and for the country.
1: And of course, today um, their memory is uh, preserved, so to speak, in Camp Hale Continental Divide National Monument over in Colorado, um, named after General Hale. Um, and you can visit it today and, and see, see the landscapes that they trained in and um, get some more insights, I guess, into what they experienced and what, how they trained.
2: It'll be very interesting to see how they set that up to help people understand the importance of that area to both World War II and America's victory, and also to outdoor recreation in this country after the war. Because as I said, skiing before the war was booming. There were up to 2 million skiers in the United States before war broke broke out. Climbing, (laughs) I, I, I love rabbit holes. I counted all the members of all the most prominent mountaineering organizations in America before the war. So that's the American Alpine Club, the Appalachian Mountain Club, Colorado Mountain Club, Sierra Club, the Mazamas and the Seattle Mountaineers. And then I added in all the university club memberships, the Yale Mountaineering Club, the Dartmouth Mountaineering Club, and all the little tiny little organizations that were scattered around the country. There were 12,000 folks that were involved in these sorts of mountain organizations before the war. And then I went deeper and tried to calculate the number who actually understood the nuances of technical climbing. So this is where you need ropes and you're on, drain where a fall would be injurious or fatal. And my ultimate number there was 500 people before the war, were actually capable of technical climbing. Um, There's another climbing historian who's we're in we're in a, in a uh, deep fight about this because he he claims there were 1,000 climbers before the war, (laughs) but. There, you know, there just weren't that many climbers before the war, but one of the great things, and I think one of the things that's talked about less than it should be about the 10th mountain division and their training was they weren't just skiing, they were skiing during the winter, but during the summer they were climbing Mm -hmm. and they built prototypical climbing walls and they were, they were, um, embarking on training maneuvers in the mountains around Camp Hale that involved the sort of climbing techniques and tactics that climbers take for granted these days. And so when they came back out from the 10th Mountain Division, they had these skill sets and they were going back out into the mountains with them. And so that contributed to the evolution of climbing in America as well.
1: We're talking with Christian Beckwith, a uh, alpinist and climbing historian. Um, Last week, we explored uh, the formation of the 10th Mountain Division and the the climbers who had honed their skills in the Tetons and their role in creating that division. Today we're talking about after World War II and what these soldiers did when they came back to the United States and they they played a key role in the development of the American ski industry and uh, as Christian had mentioned, um, the National Outdoor Leadership School.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy The Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the ten most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokeysinformation.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org.
1: Today, we're talking about after World War II and, and what these soldiers did when they came back to the United States. I guess uh, initially when they came back, some of them actually went back to to Camp Hale, so to speak, right? To to continue um, training or, or whatnot before going out across the country?
2: No, because Camp Hale was disbanded. It was taken apart as the, the division was shipped down to Camp Swift. There was no more Camp Hale. Two of the brothers, and this was an interesting component. or or facet of the story that I didn't mention, because all of the institutional knowledge for climbing and for mountain warfare really resided within the Alpine countries and the Alpine communities. The rise of the Third Reich catalyzed an exodus of a lot of these climbers and skiers from Germany and Austria to America. And when they came to America, they brought that knowledge, that was so instrumental to climbing and skiing with them. They became part of the 10th mountain division as well. And they became instructors and they became responsible for helping to disseminate this information that previously had been pretty much locked up in Europe. And so two of those guys were Joe and Paul Stetner. And they had in um, 1919 lost their father to right-wing thugs who were harassing a one-legged war veteran in the streets of Munich. their father was a left-leaning sympathizer and he went up and he harangued them for for troubling this veteran and they shot him and um, he bled out but not before he stabbed the thug in the chest with his knife but his death branded the brothers as sons of a revolutionary and as hitler and the nazis became increasingly powerful in germany before the war being a son of a revolutionary was a very dangerous thing. And so the Stetner brother's mother um, got them to emigrate to the United States in the mid-1920s. And they brought this knowledge with them. And this knowledge became part of the contribution of the German and Austrian emigres to the 10th Mountain Division's evolution when it was training in Camp Hale. And then after the war, they too became part of this incredible surge in the popularity of outdoor recreation. As I mentioned, the Stetner's brothers' entry in the Grand Teton Summit Register of September 1st, 1941, was the last one in that summit register until September 10th, 1945, when Paul Stetner left the next entry. And that was just remarkable to me is that. The rise of the 3rd Reich was part of the success of the 10th Mountain Division because people like Joe and Paul Stetner became the instructors and then Joe was too old to deploy overseas but Paul received a bronze star for his heroism in in Italy when he was his unit was pinned down by accurate sniper fire as they were advancing against German troops while everybody else in his unit though for cover he strode toward the machine gunners who were trying to kill him yelling in german surrender you must surrender you are outnumbered and the germans were so flabbergasted that this american troop was walking toward them speaking in perfect german and telling them to surrender that they actually did <laughs> he took 13 soldiers in that in that one incident the the heroism the um the incredible audacity, the the improbability of the division and its inception, all of it combines to make a story that is simply inspiring at a moment in time when inspiration can sometimes feel like it's in short supply.
0: For sure. and what,
2: what was so interesting about going out to Camp Hale, or sorry, to Fort Drum in Texas and, and giving the talk on the 10th Mountain Division to the 10th mountain division, as well as these other units that were, and the generals you know that commanded all these units was that the global war on terror and all the deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan derailed so many of the army's divisions from their histories and their identities. And so that affected morale. And for the 10th mountain division today, what they're up against is the fact that they don't have a connection to their own history and their own story. And they don't have a connection to climbing and skiing the way that they need to. And over the course of the last six to nine months, what they've realized is they have to find their way back to who they were. And that's the story of the 10th Mountain Division in World War II. And so it's such an incredible opportunity to plug in to a division that's trying to find its way back to where it came from today.
1: Now you had mentioned that uh, after the war, some of the um, climbers from the 10th Mountain Division found their way back to what is today Grand Teton National Park and, and became rangers with the Park
2: Service? Yeah, that's correct. So there was, before before the war, there was a fellow named Grant Hagen and his brother Harold. They both went into the 10th Mountain Division. Grant Hagen was nicknamed Tiny Hagen because he didn't get his growth spurt until after high school. He wasn't tiny, he was six feet tall, but his nickname was Tiny. And based on all the letters I've been able to read, he and a fellow named Martin Murray, who is the son of Olas and and, um, Marty Murray, were charismatic and compelling enough that they persuaded a number of the 10th Mountain Division soldiers to come to Jackson after the war. They told them there were really good mountains here. And so John Montaigne, who has two entire albums at the Denver Public Library, of all his memorabilia and letters from his time as a 10th Mountain Division soldier, came to Jackson in um, 1946. Helped survey the new lift line at Snow King Mountain. So Snow King Mountain is right here in the middle of our town. He helped coach the high school ski team, and in 46 he became became a ranger with Grand Teton National Park. I think because Tiny persuaded him to come back uh, to the Tetons. And in 1947, he was put in charge of the first mountain rescue operations in grand teton national park and one of his first tasks was to shaw off the shafts of 15 of the ashen brenner axes he'd found in the italian warehouse as he was deploying up to the julian alps one of the things that's so interesting about the 10th mountain division and all that gear and clothing that was developed at such incredible expense specifically for them got stuck in a warehouse in boston when they deployed to Italy. So they had to make do with what they could find when they got over there. And one of the things that John found was a warehouse filled with German equipment. And even though America had developed um, some pretty good climbing equipment and clothing for the 10th Mountain Division, the the best stuff was still the German and Austrian equipment, the the carabiners and the pitons and the hammers and the ice axes and the crampons. And so John took these, he found it. A load of equipment and he loaded up two Jeeps with all this equipment. And um, he got out from underneath the nose of a British soldier who'd been <laughs> charged with keeping everything in this warehouse. And he brought it up to grow Glockner and distributed it to the troops. So they actually had good equipment to train with when they were um, up in the Julian Alps after the after the war. And so he brought some of those axes home with him. And they became some of the first um, German axes that were part of the of Grand Teton National Park's mountain rescue operations after the war.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Did they spread out to other national parks? I mean, you know, obviously Mount Rainier National Park's got some serious climbing there. And I'm sure uh, a lot of serious search and rescue missions um, Grand Teton National Park. Um, well, we've talked about Grand Teton. Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, another um, high elevation um, park that lures people up into harm's way.
2: I would be getting in over my head if I were to comment on any park other than Grand Teton National Park. My research has very specifically been focused on my home. And um, yes, these uh, these 10th Mountain Division veterans Stand out across the country. I'm sure they had influences in national parks around the country, but I can't I can't comment with any degree of authority or accuracy on their contributions to other national parks.
1: Sounds like a new rabbit hole to go down, Christian. We're talking today with Christian Beckworth, um, who has compiled a, a riveting history of the 10th Mountain Division, and it's origins in, in climbers in the Teton range of Grand Teton National Park. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back.
0: Our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, has given away over 2 million nickels since they started their nickel-back program on their checking accounts. Learn how you can earn a nickel on your signature-based transactions at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at Yosemite.org.
1: Now, Christian, um, you have created a podcast around this history. Um, the 90-Pound Rucksack, I believe, is the name of the podcast. How, how many shows can you talk about the 10th Mountain Division and its origins in the Tetons?
2: Well, I think i mentioned, I've never met a simple problem. I haven't been able to complicate. And so I've been writing a book about John, John McCown as a way to talk about the 10th mountain division and its contribution to outdoor recreation in America. That obviously wasn't complicated enough. So I started a podcast called 90 pound rucksack. That is sort of my real time research as I'm going through the division's history. And I've put together a board of the foremost experts on the division to help advise on this history. So I'm getting it right. And um, the, (laughs) what I tried to divvy it up into chapters, which would then also be episodes, I came up with 19 episodes. I'm currently working on episode four, which is actually episode six, because I took episode one and called it episode zero, because it was really about how I stumbled in backward into this story in the first place. Episode one was actually a standalone episode, but then episode two, which was on the state of the art of climbing and skiing before the war, turned out to be so complicated that I had to break it into episode two, part one, which was the state of skiing in America before the war and episode two, part two, which was the state of climbing in America before the war. And so I'm currently working on, uh, no, I just finished episode okay. three. Working on episode four, which is supposed to get me all the way through the Fort Lewis days. So that's the when they actually deployed to Camp Hale in November of 1942, and I can't get through the ski patrols. There were six ski patrols that the Army put together in the winter of 1940 and 41, and each one of those is taking me a week to research. So, how many episodes? Can this turn into, I don't, if I knew how long this was actually going to take, number one, my wife would divorce me. And number two, I wouldn't have the heart to continue because it's, it's just mind boggling.
1: Oh, come on. Come on. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, national parks traveler, we're up over 200 episodes and we do one every week of the year. And um, I never run out of wonderful stories to tell, but from your perspective, I mean, I know Paul Petzold has died. Have, have any, are there any survivors of the 10th Mountain Division that you've been able to
2: talk to? Yes. And the one 10th Mountain Division veteran that I've spoken with is a fellow named Howard Cook. And he learned to climb in the 1930s with Bester Robinson and particularly David Brower in the, out of the Sierra Club. So he was in Yosemite National Park, where... Clim- technical climbing really took on an American um, an American flavor that was all its own. And so Howard learned to climb with David Brower, which itself was absolutely remarkable because Brower was at the forefront of American climbing at the time. And then he deployed to Italy. And lo and behold, he was part of the ascent of River Ridge with John McCown. Up, multi-service on February eighteenth and nineteenth, and so in one of the episodes, I've I've interviewed Howard a couple of times, and he just talks about John McCown. and I think this is one of the dangers of of writing about somebody is that you can become, you can almost fall in love with them, particularly if they're not around, where you know humans tend to be very flawed uh, as individuals, but as you create a story about them, I think the flaws fall away. And what's left is the paradigm of humanity. And so as I've been writing about john, what's been so interesting is that he has emerged in my mind, as this paragon of excellence, he was a student at Wharton, he was a falconer at a time when there were 200 falconers in the country, I interviewed the only other climber I've ever known, who started as a falconer and ended up as a climber. And that's Yvonne chenard And I said, Yvonne, you know, how, (laughs) what is this falconry and how did it lead for John into climbing? And so he was able to help me understand the nuances of, of that evolution. But Cook, Howard Cook was with John on Reaver Ridge, had gotten to know him in the weeks before Reaver Ridge, and he was so emotionally how would I say so connected to him that when he was telling me about him, he began to cry. And he said, I think, I think I was in love with John McCown. And what I've realized in doing this research about him is that he was a person who inspired everybody around them to be better than they ever could have been on their own. And I think one of the things that has emerged in my research of him is that he made people feel better about themselves. He made them feel good about themselves. And what they say is you'll never remember what somebody did, but you'll always remember how they made you feel. And John McCown made Howard Cook cry more than 70 years after his death,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: because of his because of how he made him feel. And so it's been just fascinating to get into the personality. Uh, I have connected with a fellow who, who I thought John McCown's story had never been discovered by anybody else, but of course that was ridiculous. And I've um, met a a man named uh, Will Holland, who's been working on a screenplay about John McCown for 23 years. and So it's been fascinating to talk to him because he's managed to get further in the research than I have. And he's unearthed all these stories about him that just make him seem like a good time. Hmm. he was a lot of fun and he didn't ever think about the consequences of his fun so in high school he would do things like um he had one friend norm white that he would just convince to go with him on every single adventure and they would do things like climb up into a belfry and, and take out the clapper of a of a church bell so that the students at the school they were attending who had a tradition of going up and ringing the bell on a particular morning would go up On that particular morning and go to ring and have no ringing there whatsoever and of course norm white's father was the head of the school and so they were discovered and uh i think severely reprimanded but that never stopped john and it was that sort of don't worry about the consequences plus the audacity of youth that were instrumental to his leadership i think that night of february 18th and 19th as he led his 200 soldiers up the hardest route On River Ridge under cover of darkness to take the top without a casualty and take the Germans on top as well.
1: How old was he at that time?
2: He was 26. They're all kids. They are all
1: kids. And did he survive the war?
2: Yeah, I have to read the story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Episode next.
2: Episode 93.
1: 93, yeah. So where are you going with this podcast? I mean, you you said you start out and you had X number of episodes. Is this a, a long-range project? Is it is it a project to force you to do the research to put into a
2: book about this? Well, nothing has ever gotten done without a deadline. And I work best when I have one pointed at my head. And so this has been a way for me to give myself a deadline that I have to hit every month. I've, I've told myself I'm going to do one episode a month. And that's actually already proven to be impossible because I go too deep into the research. But the idea, you know, my background as a, as a publisher and an editor had, um, I've, I've been very familiar with the, with the publishing world. Um, you know, I started my first magazine in 94 and then edited the American Alpine Journal and then started Alpinist Magazine. And the print landscape has just changed so dramatically yeah. since I was doing that. Yeah. And I wanted to write a book and I began to research the economics of writing a book. And if you really want to get depressed, try to write a book and make it make money because their the current model is just fundamentally broken.
1: I, I know that. Well, I've written several books. Um, there was just a, a column in the New York times about writers and, you know, everybody applauds the writer when they hit the top, but they don't understand what came before that success. It's just, um, it's depressing, frankly. It's it's a, a good lesson if you don't want to become a writer. Look at the successful writers and all the failures they had beforehand.
2: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. No, it's a, I, I think it's a form of sickness. I just don't know if they've <laughs> actually come up with a with a designation for it yet. But the idea here was if I could build out this podcast and make it compelling and build up an audience, I'd be able to sell directly to the audience and bring them along on the ride as I go. And so that's working, you know, we're developing a really good, um, what do you call it? A a base of listeners who are enthusiastic about it. And it's opened up these other opportunities too. Like I never would have expected to go out to Fort Drum and give a presentation on the history of the 10th Mountain Division to the 10th Mountain (laughs) Division. But that's, you know, a couple of weeks ago, that's what I did. So it's, I don't know where this is leading, I think if I were able to get a clear view from 30,000 feet of the journey ahead of me, I'd probably curl up into a fetal position in my bed and stay there for the next couple of years. But I got to say, I'm just, this is such a fascinating and compelling story. And I so want to get it right that this, you know, like this week, I've just been diving into these experimental ski patrols of 1940, 41 there's almost no information on them. So I'm having to go from newspaper reports, but I'm learning who was behind them. And it's people like Rolf Monson, who was three time Olympic, and I have, and I can't figure this out. He, was, he might've been the head of the US ski team for three Olympics in a row, 28, 32 and 36. And he was part of the experimental ski patrol out of, um, oh, it was a base up in New York. And so you had this Olympic ski athlete, this US ski team competitor who had won all the competitions in the United States and been born in Norway, teaching these soldiers how to ski. That's just absolutely fascinating to me. These soldiers were getting instruction from the best skiers in the country. And a lot of them were emigres, like Rolf Monson and like the Stettner brothers, who had been caused, who's Immigration had been precipitated by the rise of Hitler and the Third Reich. It's just absolutely fascinating. No idea where it's going to go, and uh, if I ever did, I probably would give up. But
1: for <laughs> I'm, now. Curious. I'm curious. Um, you, you say you're building a, a pretty good base of listeners for your episodes. Any idea on who your listeners are? And I, I ask that because. I mean, I was a history minor in college. I found history amazing. And so it would appeal to me, obviously. But I'm just wondering, you know, the greatest generation is is pretty much gone. People who would have a connection with the 10th Mountain Division. Any idea who, who's listening to this?
2: Well, my friends, God bless <laughs> them. <laughs> Start with friends and family. Uh, it's been interesting because I'm getting you know, people are reaching out and they're becoming patrons, I've got a a Patreon set up to help underwrite the research. So I'm now making officially I'm making uh, three cents a a day on on the sort of research that I'm doing. But when people become patrons, I reach out and I just ask them why, what interested you? Some of them are climbers, some -hmm. of them are skiers, some of them their fathers were in the 10th Mountain Division some of them are currently in the 10th mountain division which is how i got invited out to the 10th mountain division base Fort drum others are parts of um something like the army warfare training i can't remember exactly what the name is but out in vermont and this is where the army goes to train its mountain troops um and so i've been getting outreach from just a wide cross-section of folks that come at this, this particular story from a lot of different angles, and some of them are very personal. And some of them are just um, out of sheer curiosity, some are compelled by the story itself. But you know, I think at a certain point in your life, it can become easy to get entrenched in your own little circles and your own little ways. And that has an impact on how you see the world. And this has blown my mind on multiple levels. And part of it is to go spend those days with the generals running around the base on Fort drum doing these abbreviated d-series maneuvers i never would have expected to be running next to um, general major general anderson who's the the division commander for the 10th mountain division talking as we're running on snowshoes about the 10th mountain division and how to build up its morale in its current incarnation by reconnecting it to its past i mind-boggling
1: yeah fascinating absolutely style.
2: surreal yeah
1: so w- will there be a book at the end
2: <sighs> yes
1: writers write because we like to write
2: <laughs> if it weren't for all the research it'd
1: be a lot more fun well i think the research is the fun part it's it's once you compile all that information into notes and folders and cubby holes that you have to pull it all together into a cohesive story that's with the central thread running through it that's the
2: hard part it is the hard part and this has so many threads and each thread leads to its own rabbit hole and i've been going down a lot of them and the challenge is to come back up out of each rabbit hole and see it from above and as a point in a, a picture that's created by pulling together all of these points and to make it a beautiful picture because it is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of America in a time that didn't have some of the factors at play that make the politics today so divisive. And it's an inspiring story. And I have been moved by the story in ways that I never would have imagined possible. The heroism, the tenacity, the bravery, the um, this, this desire to serve. One's country that came out of the best of places. And that ability to d- deploy as a green unit and do what they did in 114 days of combat boggles the mind. And then the true grace of the division was when it came back to the United States. And when they brought everything that they'd learned during their training and everything that they experienced during the, the war and bringing it back out into these communities, all of whom today claim the 10th as their own. I I just think that's such a singular and rare opportunity. And I guess that's why I continue to go down these rabbit holes.
1: Yeah, well, it definitely is a fascinating story. And I'm certainly glad you're doing it for the rest of us. Where can people catch 90-pound rucksack?
2: You can go to my website, and that's christianbeckwith.com. And of course, you can find it wherever you get your Podcasts, so Apple or Spotify or Google or all the other apps. Sounds great.
1: Well, Christian, thank you so much for um, sharing your time with us and and opening uh, the window on uh, the 10th Mountain Division and its origins and uh, the endeavors that it went through um, during the war and after the war.
2: Thank you for the opportunity. That's our show for this week.
1: We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're traveling virtually at least, to Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve in Alaska, where biologists have been studying the diets of the park's wolves. And it's not exactly what you might envision a wolf eating. Lynn Riddick will have the details. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
0: Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.